Breckenridge. Talk on FM. QR Calgary. Oh, yes. Roller, of course, uh, one of the hits from April Wine, Legends uh, of Canadian Classic Rock. Uh, welcome to this hour of the program. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Thanks for being with us here on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we got some other stuff we'll get to, but very excited for this next conversation. Uh, there's a little tinge, I guess. I don't know if sadness is the right word, but kind of a, an end of an era of sorts. Uh, Miles Goodwin, of course, uh, singer, guitarist, writer, producer, leader, and founder of the group April Wine, has announced that he is going to stop touring with the band. Not leaving the band. Uh, but uh, is is done with the grind, I guess, maybe of, of being on the road. So uh, that's unfortunate, but uh, maybe some well-deserved kind of partial retirement. Anyway, joining us to talk about that and more, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned, the one and only, Miles Goodwin. Miles, great to have you with us here. How are you doing? Well, hang on, Miles, you there? Okay. Hang on. All right. He was there. He was there. Patrick, uh, our technical producer, uh, spoke with him. I don't know. Should I put that on hold or hang up that line? Anyway, so we'll get Miles back on the line. He was there. So we do know that. Uh, so we'll see what uh, what happened. But as mentioned, uh, the announcement that uh, following, I believe they have a show coming up in uh, March. That will be his last. Now, it's going to be a show in Halifax. And he's from the East Coast, of course. Uh, so maybe there's some uh, significance in that. But yeah, March 2nd in Halifax will be Ma's last performance with April Wine. So you can read more about what uh, what's going on in their world. AprilWine.ca is the website. But of course, you know, they founded this band way back in 1969. So it's been many years uh, of performing with this group. I think we got Miles on the line. Miles, you there? I'm here. There we go. Perfect. Not sure what happened. So great to have you with us here. How are you doing? Well, it's a lot of buttons and knobs, you know? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm glad we got you. Anyway, so uh, you. a lot to talk about. But let, let's get into this decision here. You decided to take a, a step back. Uh, March 2nd will be your, your last performance with the band. So what led to that? Yeah, that's yeah, that's. I think you, when you uh, when you were announcing that we were going to be talking, you mentioned that uh, you know just uh, you know, being on the road is very tiresome, very very difficult to do. And uh, and in my case, uh, with my diabetes and my being seventy five in June, you know, it's kind of like it's all of that. And you know, the residual the results of of COVID and how that's infected the industry. In terms of travel, and not just our industry, but everybody, with cancellations, losing luggage, flight delays, you know, one thing after another, and it becomes a, a lot more complicated, more difficult today than it's ever been, I think. And uh, and I've been out this year. It's just I find it so difficult and so stressful, and uh, and and it, it hasn't been good for my health uh, because of my diabetes. I just can't keep it under control out there. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to stay in the band, and I'm, going to, I'm writing for the album, the next uh, uh, of some songs for April Wine right now. I'm hands-on with kind of managing them with a team of other people. I uh, oversee everything to make sure April Wine has, keeps the integrity right. uh, that we've had over the years. Um, and so, yeah, it, it made sense in the time, the time it arrived. 
Yeah, and that becomes a question about a band and, you know, different parts come and go, different members come and go from any band over the years, right? And so what makes a band a band? Where Where is the soul of that band? How do you come at that question? Well, I mean, it's, sort of, it's, it's a soul. The, 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 the heartbeat of any band is the music, you know, yeah. and, and, and that can only be accomplished by all members, all performing members in that group at any given time. Like when when I decided not to work on the road with April Wine anymore, before I announced anything, uh, I went to uh, Brian Greenway, who's been in the band since 1977, yeah. uh, my right-hand guy. And I said, Brian, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, what do you want to do? Uh, because I don't want to continue without you. And uh, if you don't want to continue, well, that's fine with me. We'll just... He was just uh, you know, shut her down, but he said no. He wanted to. He wanted to play. He wanted to continue playing. He feels uh, strong and excited and, and wants to keep doing it. And then the other guys in the band uh, wanted the same thing. So there were three out of four of us that was going to decide to keep going. So I said, okay, well let's let's get somebody that replaces me and, and we'll carry on. So mm-hmm. that's how we. Uh, and this band is so good. And I'm not just saying that the the, the guy singing. Replace me as singing guitar. Brian also sings leads, sings leads, and so does our drummer Roy. But this, he, like, his singing is—he can sound just like me. It's, it's amazing, and he's a phenomenal guitar player and a great person. And uh, they've bonded really well as friends and also musically. So it, it's a really good band right now. You know, the thing is, it, right, Miles, it's all a moot point if there's no demand, right? Uh, but clearly there is, right? And so that relationship with the fans is why the band keeps going. There's there's still that, that demand to, to hear these songs, to hear this content. How do you explain that, that relationship and, and the longevity that April Wine has had? Oh, well, that's really easy. That's uh, Radio has been very good to April One, and it continues to be good to April One. Uh, music, April One's music is played uh, everywhere in Canada all year round uh played in in a lot of a lot of parts of the united states still mm-hmm. at classic rock now of course it's not in the top 40 or anything but yeah. uh, current top 40 but just classic radio and thank uh, you know radio and, and thanks to them the continued play um people you know three generations really uh, are into the songs that they hear on the radio, you know, and, and even the young people that I see, you know, very young people, um, that love in April 1, they know the words, and, you know, and all the rest of it. You see them singing along, and you say, geez, they're only like 17 or 15 or something oh, like yeah. that. It's crazy. Yeah. And they just love the music, and that's because they hear it on the radio, they heard it from their parents, uh, whatever, and, uh, and uh, April 1 continues to be popular. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. At some point, you know, you guys are rock band, April Wine, and then I guess one day it's it's classic rock. I don't know when, when rock becomes classic rock, how many years have to pass. Well, I but think after funny, 50 it? years, you're classic <laughs> rock. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair to say. Absolutely. Um, hey, by the way, you know, I mean, obviously you're a guitarist. You talk about amazing guitarists. I mean, I mean just, you know, sad note last week, obviously, from the world of music and, and the passing of, of Jeff Beck. Uh, be curious yeah. your perspective as someone who's done this for so long, you know, what kind of an impact he had? Was he an influence on you at all? Uh, I can't say that he was a direct influence on me, although he was where Paige uh, was an influence, with Led Zeppelin in particular. Yeah. And they played together back in the Yardbirds and the Friends Forever, and uh, Clapton as well. 
but I just had so much respect um, for Jeff Beck. What he's the sounds that he's getting out of a out of a, out of a guitar in modern times is just absolutely breathtaking. He's so unique and so good and such a virtuoso that I'm just a real good fan. A fan. I like to watch his uh, videos, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to see his videos and listen to his music. And uh, it was really, really sad that he died uh, so young. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, in terms of other influences on you, I and mean, you guys got going, I think, right around 69, 70s, so you're coming of age through that incredible period in, in the mid to late 60s. So as, 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 as April Wine is coming together, what was influencing you at the time? Well, you know, original April Wine, that was your question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we were four individuals coming from four different places. That's the thing about the original group. It, it, it just couldn't last. Um, but it did get us out of the Maritimes um, way back in 1970, and we formed in 69. Like my, my, you know, first of all, the Beatles were a tremendous influence on the world, including me, uh, musically and you know, recognizing songwriting. And the bass player, Jim Henman, is still my best friend. We speak almost every day. He's a founding member, bass and vocals. He was coming from a different place entirely. And then David Henman, the third, Jim's cousin David, was coming from a different place again. And then drummer, the drummer was Richie, uh, another cousin of Jim's and brother of, of David. Uh, and, um, yeah, we came from different places. So the first album, for example, uh, when each one, when we feature each each song from each of these three writers, uh, they're all very different from each other. And... Uh, like I say, that wasn't that wasn't ideal. And then changes were made, uh, um, you know, as we went along and, and it reshaped until it became what we know today. Especially during the periods of the mid seventies to mid eighties. Was it David who came up with the name? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. As I recall, uh, that's folklore anyway. I believe he <laughs> was. I don't remember the day they said let's call it April Wine. But you know, um, I don't, I never cared for this for the name, but it's what you make of it. Um, that's the main thing. Is what what does it mean really? Uh, and and so that's. I mean, we literally. I tell the story now and then, but you know, we we literally would check into a hotel way back in the early days of April Wine, and and we'd all check in. The florist would check in, and then they would be asking about uh, the fifth room and and April. Oh, yeah. Assuming that April was a person, right? Yeah, <laughs> and we say no, no, it is no April. April is, is us. That's us. Our band is April Wine. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's not a real like story to it. I mean, it's just kind of a, a, a ra- almost like a random thing, and it just it, it David proposed it. We think, and then that, that yeah, yeah. Stuff, well, right? you know, the, the story goes. I don't remember it exactly, but this is what I hear from. Um, bits and you know, testing people's memories over time. But basically, uh, the, the thing was that David, who was the leader of the band, um, was uh, wanted a name that didn't imply any type of music, where you have a Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. You know that's going to rock, you know, and yeah. probably hard. Um, and so, didn't want anything like that because we were diversified. We were all over the place. Jim with his acoustic blues and David with his style and everything else. So he came up with the, those two words, April Wine, and uh, I said, I don't care. 
You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's memorable. As it's unique. It stands out. Music, I don't get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, and I've been getting a, a lot of text here. Uh, you know, this one uh, says, Rob, please thank Miles for his many fans. April Wine is still my number one band performance experience of all time. So... Nice. I, you know, the fans love it, not just the songs, but the performance. And going back to, you know, the reason we're having this conversation, stepping away from it and, and the grind of being on the road, the difficulty. But obviously, there's going to be a lot of it you're going to miss, I would imagine. I'm going to miss, yeah. You know, I'm going to miss, I think first and, well, it's hard to say first and foremost, but I'm going to miss the big stages, uh, the fans, the big audiences, the big amplifier, the big guitar, the big sound. Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss all of that because the only performing I'm doing right now is just an acoustic, uh, you know, uh, songs and uh, conversation kind of concerts, and they're they're acoustic and um, and I do some blues stuff after releasing a couple of blues albums that did very well. But the rock, big rock shows, I, I guess I guess I'm at the end of that uh, journey. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll miss that. I'll miss the, I'll miss the friends that I know only from the road. All those. All those people in the, uh, all the other bands, members of the bands that I've known for years and years, we meet at airports, we meet in hotel lobbies, backstage, you know, all that jam with some of them. You know, I've known them for many, many, many years, and, and I won't see them again. You know, I just know that this is the end of, of, of those relationships uh, as I've known it to be, right, in person. So, you know, that, that's, that's a hard one to take. You know, and, and I know when it comes to the classic hits, and these are all kind of your babies, and, and so maybe this is an awkward question, but are, are there some that over the years you were really, like, excited to perform? Are there some where it kind of felt like, oh, you know, this one again? I don't know. How did you, What's your relationship with all of them? Well, most, mostly, you know, mostly I don't mind playing any of them. There are yeah. a couple of songs that we've done that I just do not like to do, and I try to avoid them because I like to have fun up there, and our, our, our set usually represents all songs that are fun, but we also have to play what the fans want. Right. Uh, you know, that's the same with any band, you know, and uh, so we have to, certain songs we have to do, but there, there are a few of them that, uh, you know, you don't, you don't care for, uh, like Bad Side of the Moon, it might surprise people. I don't like to play that song. <laughs> I don't like the singer play it, uh, but people really like it, so we pull it in and out of the set, but generally we, uh, we like what we play, or we wouldn't play it. Yeah. All right, so March 2nd, I guess it'll be a bittersweet night. Uh, back out east in, in Halifax, that'll be the final performance. Uh, more at aprilwine.ca and milesgoodwin.com. Miles, so great to catch up with you. Congrats on, on everything, and uh, again, thanks so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. All the best, and Miles. And thanks to the fans out there, too. I love coming to Calgary. I will miss it. Absolutely. All the best, Miles. Thanks. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Bye -bye. There you go. One and only Miles Goodwin. Yeah, the, the only remaining original member of the band, of course, one of the founders of April Wine, uh, 1969 is when they uh, came together. But some of the members still have been around a long time, as he mentioned. But uh, what a legacy this band has. So it will, it will continue. It will live on. Obviously, the music lives forever, but Miles has decided that, you know, after more than 50 years, time to take a step back from uh, the performance side. So, yeah, an end of an era in, in that sense. Hey, folks, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge here on QR Calgary, 403-974-8255. is the number. We'll get to more of your phone calls and uh, plenty more to get to on the program here this afternoon. Uh, you might recall back on October 18th of 2021, 
Albertans uh, went to the polls to elect their respective municipal governments, but also to have a say on equalization. We cast ballots. 62% of voters voted yes to the question. I don't know if people remember specifically what the question was or really what it was we expected to change. Given some of the confusion, maybe it's not a surprise. The issue kind of dropped off the radar. We've decided, you know, to, to I guess, go about our, our disagreements with the federal government uh, in other ways. And so a lot of talk about equalization eventually led to not much talk. But I don't think the issue's gone away. And certainly in, in terms of Albertans' concerns about equalization, I don't think that's gone away. The program is misunderstood. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, but just because it's misunderstood doesn't mean it's, it's perfect, doesn't mean it's above scrutiny. Uh, so the, the program perhaps needs an overhaul. But I think we should temper our expectations maybe about what that would mean from Alberta's perspective. But here's a good example uh, of where the program isn't doing what it's supposed to do. The province of Ontario is uh, very much a have province, hasn't always been, uh, but certainly is. The purpose of equalization, obviously, is that the province is deemed to be the have-nots, receive some of that funding from the federal government. Yet, as our next guest notes, due to a quirk in the formula, Ontario will receive $421 million in equalization payments this year, despite not being a have-not province. But how does something like that happen? And what does it tell us about the effectiveness of this program. Well, joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow with the School of Public Policy. He has a great piece up at thehub.ca on this. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hang on, we got you there, Trevor? Yep. Perfect. Thanks for joining us here. Appreciate it. Okay, so first of all, let's... This is a question that could have a very long answer, but kind of the overview, again, uh, of what equalization is supposed to do, why it exists, and then we can get into what's going on here. Sure. I guess the the simplest way to think about equalization involves recognizing that some provinces have just stronger economies than others. And so that makes it easier for them to raise revenue to fund public services. So right. New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, you know, their per-person level of economic activity is just far below what we see in Alberta, BC, uh, or, or even Ontario. And so what the federal government does is estimates the amount that a province is below the national average in terms of its fiscal capacity, and then tops them up to that average through uh, these payments uh, that we refer to as equalization. Right. And so in that, in that sense, wages are, are really relevant factors here because it's about a province's capacity to generate tax revenue. Provinces that have higher wages can therefore generate a lot more tax revenue. Yeah, that, that's right. So earnings being very different across provinces largely reflects the strength of their economy. So average weekly earnings in Prince Edward Island, for example, is the lowest of the 10 provinces. And that means that each point of income taxes that are uh, imposed there will just raise fewer dollars than they will here. Uh, Corporate profits matters as well. So Ontario and Alberta are home to many profitable corporations for Ontario's finance, for Alberta oil and gas and and others. That makes corporate income taxes generate more dollars per point. And so the equalization kind of goes across most of the main ways the provinces raise revenue, tries to estimate what their yields are, and then for anyone below the national average, it tops them up to it. 
Yeah, and it's interesting as we look ahead to this coming fiscal year, and we'll talk about Ontario, obviously, but just from an Alberta perspective, despite the challenges Alberta has faced in recent years, Alberta still has, by a fairly wide margin, the, the highest fiscal capacity in the country. Yeah, the gap between Alberta and the rest of the country has shrank. You know, the recession we went through in 2015 and 16 uh, was was quite significant, really shrank Alberta's economy relative to what it was performing at previously. The disruptions in 2020 were also uh, quite a bit larger in Alberta because it wasn't just COVID, but also really low world oil prices. And so therefore that gap between us and the rest of the country shrank. But yet we, we maintained... Uh, the number one spot, not just uh, an above average level of fiscal capacity, but the highest level in the country. Now, one other question around equalization I, I wanted to address, because this seems to come up a lot. The idea that this is somehow different from other federal spending programs, that like Alberta somehow contributes directly or separately to equalization. Mm-hmm. Where does the money for this come from? Yeah, it, it all comes out of federal general revenue. So the same pot of money that funds everything that the federal government does. So this is just, you know, a line item in the federal budget that is no different from that perspective than any other type of of federal spending. So it's not something where provinces contribute. Uh, It's something that is funded entirely from federal taxes. Now, it is true that Albertans on average pay more in federal taxes, but that is also a consequence of incomes being higher here than elsewhere. Right. Okay. So as we look ahead to the uh, coming fiscal year, as we noted, so you've got Alberta that has the, the highest uh, fiscal capacity. You've got BC, Saskatchewan, even Newfoundland, surprisingly, is, is up there. And then Ontario, at least on the surface, appears to be uh, a have province. So yeah. why is Ontario set to receive some equalization funding? Yeah, that, that's kind of the, the funny aspect of the formula this year. I mean, it's not the first time Ontario's received equalization. They received it for several years uh, following the financial crisis. But unlike then, when Ontario was below average, right, it was a bad recession for manufacturing and Ontario in particular. This time around, Ontario is above average in terms of its measure of fiscal capacity, whether you include resource revenues or not. Uh, But it receives a payment because the way that the federal government implements equalization is it first decides how many dollars it wants allocated to the program, and then it runs the calculation. And for this year, uh, the formula wants to pay out actually $2.3 billion less than what's allocated to the program. And so these leftover dollars then need to be allocated to other provinces, and uh, Ontario received some of those leftover dollars. So it's, a, it's an example of a province receiving a payment, but is above the national average. And so that's a, it's kind of an odd thing. It, it uh, is um, something that will begin in April, and I think does kind of reveal uh, one kind of technical weakness of the way that the program is designed now. And where where are the rest of these leftover dollars going? Well, they go to uh, every province that receives equalization, or they go to a province that needs to get them to not be left behind any equalization receiving province. So Ontario gets dollars because if it didn't, then Quebec would actually be made better off than Ontario. Um, And... That's kind of awkward to have yeah. provinces receiving equalization be better off than provinces that are not. So Ontario receives a portion of these 
leftover dollars, and the every other equalization receiving province receives some as well. Which is weird, for one, but it, it certainly undermines <laughs> kind of the whole principle here, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does, right? In principle, we want the formula to top up below average provinces to the national average level. That's how it was originally envisioned and designed by an expert panel back in 2006, actually chaired by an Albertan, Al, Al O'Brien. Uh, but here with these leftover dollars, we're no longer comparing provinces to that national average. And you have this funny situation this coming year when you'll have a have province, uh, that is Ontario, above average, receiving some of the dollars. And so the federal government, you know, if it, if it went back to kind of a formula-driven, principles-based approach to equalization like, um, like we had in 2007 and 2008, then the federal government would save $2.3 billion and the program would you know, better uh, kind of address what it's meant to, which is topping up below average provinces. Well, and, and yeah, the formula is set for renewal coming up in 2024, so maybe there's an opportunity right. to revisit that. But as you said, I mean, you know, the choice about total dollars isn't formula dependent. The government could simply choose to reduce the overall amount that goes in, right? Yeah, it could. It could. The way that the formula worked in 2007 and eight was the formula determined how many dollars would go uh, out as equalization, and it would depend on all sorts of things. Uh, but then in 2009, the government kind of fixed the size of the program and then indexed it to economic growth. And absolutely, the, the government could change that. Um, and as you noted, the current formula is set to expire at the end of March 2024. And so we have you know, just over one year, uh, which makes kind of this calendar year 2023 kind of interesting to think about implementing reforms prior to when the current formula expires. Would it make sense then to go back to a situation where the formula determines the amount? Would that be a good place to start? So uh, I tend to think so. I mean, mm -hmm. the way that the the formula would determine how many dollars to pay out would be effectively a function of how unequal provinces are. So the program would grow larger if inequality increases, and it would shrink if provinces get closer together. And I think that's kind of a natural uh, way to think about a program like this, because it is meant to help bridge these gaps between provinces. Uh, there is, of course, a risk to the federal government because it's left holding the bag if the program grows too large. So you could imagine having maybe a ceiling or, or something else to protect the federal budget from that kind of risk. But to have a, a minimum amount of dollars, like a floor, and then pay out all these extras, yeah. uh, it's really hard to think about um, why we should have that. And I think it was something that was originally not envisioned. And it's just kind of a weird consequence of the way that the, the legislation was written. Indeed. Well, as mentioned, your piece, it's up at thehub.ca. Trevor, appreciate the overview of all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You bet. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. Uh, that is Trevor Toom, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy of the University of Calgary, and has written a lot about the equalization issue. And he's, he's a really interesting voice in all of this, someone who really, I think, understands the ins and outs of this. So not something we've heard a lot about, this, this weird quirk. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, in the uh, equalization world, $420 million isn't a lot of money. But that's what Ontario is going to receive.
You know, you got billions that are going to other provinces. Uh, but $421 million, for example, I mean, Prince Edward Island gets $561 million. So it's comparable on that level. I mean, Ontario is a, a much bigger province, clearly. But again, Ontario is not a have-not province. As Trevor Toome says, if they were, okay, fine. But they're not, which is what's so weird. So the government committed a certain amount of money, and after the formula is applied, there's some leftover. And this, this weird situation where if Ontario didn't get a little bit of this, uh, Quebec might actually be further ahead than them, which really undermines the whole purpose or premise of the program. So, yes, it's flawed, and that's an example of how it's flawed. That needs to change. Look, ultimately, it's about the program doing what it's supposed to do. Ultimately, it's about a more effective use of federal dollars. But let's be clear, there's no change to equalization. That would include scrapping equalization, by the way. Uh, That would mean any money coming to Alberta or staying in Alberta. And so I think if we recognize that as the starting point, and we can have a productive conversation about how this this flawed program uh, can be improved. Uh, now, as it pertains to the, the Liberal government, there, there was a promise going back to 2015 uh, that the Liberals, if, if they formed government, would fix Canada's access to information system. And unfortunately, nothing's really changed. It was interesting, just over a year ago, in fact, following a, a year or so of public consultation, the government did release a pretty detailed report on, on just how bad the access to information laws are, which go all the way back to the early 1980s, by the way. Um, so, yeah, I guess some of the problems have been clearly identified, but nothing really seems to change. And, and for a lot of Canadians, it's not something we encounter very often. Now, I work in the media. I've never filed an access to information request, but many of my colleagues have. And, you know, certainly what I can attest to hearing from them is that it's, it's a real mess. Here's another interesting example. This was laid out in an op-ed piece over the weekend of the Goldman Mail with the headline, Thanks to Canada's broken access to information system, we now have to look abroad to understand our own history. A couple of historians uh, working on a project about uh, Canadian history, foreign relations specifically from 1993 to 2006, are having to turn to other countries to find the declassified government files that can help tell these stories. So why is this such a problem in Canada? Well, joining us uh, for more is the uh, co-author of this op-ed, one of the historians working on this piece that we mentioned. Uh, Robert Bothwell joins us, a fellow with Trinity College at the University of Toronto, working on this uh, project, looking at uh, Canadian foreign relations between uh, 1993 and 2006. Robert, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Tell us a bit more about the project, first of all. Well, um... It really uh, sort of depends on the mortality tables. Uh, we've reached a point where the ministers of Mulroney and Kretia are achieving um, a happy old age, but right. um, time is marching on. Kretia himself is 89. And um, <clears throat> if we're going to get anything out of these guys, uh, we, we had better move now. So, I mean, that is the basis. We're trying to do a whole set of interviews with people who were involved with our foreign affairs. And that's both um, domestic and foreign. So we're hoping to interview people in the United States and uh, in Great Britain. We're hoping um, you know, the British Prime Ministers of the period are still alive. So we're, we're trying to get a complete picture mm-hmm. of where uh, 
Canada stood, what Canada did during that period. You know, that involves the 9-11 catastrophe in the United States, the war in Iraq, uh, intervention in um, not Albania, but Kosovo in 1999. There's a whole bunch of things that we were involved in. So um, we're trying to do it. And of course, uh, between us and our objectives stands the Access to Information Act, and um, <clears throat> which uh, has caused a whole generation of historians in Canada to want to go out and hang themselves from the nearest bridge. Yeah. Well, when when one is compiling that kind of history, and obviously interviews, if you're able to get them, can, can help shape that history, but how important are the actual files and documents uh, from the time? Well, um, one of the problems, of course, with uh, with history and the interviews in particular, is people forget or they remember inaccurately. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had people give me wonderful stories of events that they took part in, only to discover that well, didn't happen quite that way. And you know, these are honest people; they are doing their best to be uh, cooperative in an interview, but. You can't absolutely rely on their their recollection of what they said. Um, I mean, I've, I've had cabinet ministers say, well, I was there and I spoke up and so on. <laughs> well, no, they didn't, actually. And no, they weren't there either. Um, so we're dealing with fallibility. And, and the, way, the way to get involved in this stuff is to um, look at the files and see what the files tell you. And in particular... Uh, when we're looking at, you know, um, collective decisions, uh, you, you turn to the cabinet records and you turn to the cabinet minutes. And in Canada, um, unfortunately, uh, these are just not available after 1980. And so, um, you know, we're way back and we have to depend on, um, on the Brits. And because uh, the Brits are good record keepers, there there may be other things wrong with Great Britain, but by God, they keep good records. And so we use their stuff. We use the Americans. Sometimes we use the French. And, um, you know, it's really embarrassing for us as Canadians. And we used to have the best system in the world. Uh, you know, the archives in Ottawa was open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, we had something called the 30-year rule, which meant that documents were automatically open on January the 1st of whatever year it is. And the Brits still have that. So, um, you know, for example, when I was doing um, the Constitution, Alberta versus uh, Government of Canada back in the 1980s, well, you know, the, the <laughs> There was the interview with Margaret Thatcher um, dealing with the, you know, the whole question, um, even the question of whether Alberta House in London had a, a spy from the federal government employed there. <laughs> so, you know, you, you really do find um, through documents materials that you, uh, that you can use. You know, I, sometimes you're dealing with people who are, mm, <laughs> they have something to protect. And so, um, I mean, I remember one instance where I was happily chatting along with somebody. And he, oh, yes, he said, you know, I 
got along so well with so-and-so, and he respected me. And I said, well, that's very interesting. Would you like to take a look at this document? And, you know, to his great credit, he didn't bat an eye. He said, oh, well, you know, opinions differ. <laughs> and because it was something in which the guy he'd been talking about uh, had, had denounced him as a crook. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you do <clears throat> you do need that kind of thing. And unfortunately... Um, the government takes the view that uh, these may be documents paid for by the taxpayers of Canada, but no, they're not entitled actually to see them. It all, it all seems very arbitrary because you mentioned the UK. So the UK has kind of an automatic release system, right? After 20 years, files are declassified. We don't really have that. They're, they're just kind of there. There's no system for releasing them, and, and it feels like you know the government's erring on the side of secrecy. Well, yeah. I mean, this this was predictable right from the beginning of the institution of our so-called access to information system. But what that promises is that the government will release uh, documents on request, uh, but they have to be reviewed first. And that means they have to be reviewed by someone. And that means that someone in a busy office is going to have to take the time out to read a file, which, in fact, they probably know nothing about. And so the default in that situation is, oh, gosh, I don't know anything about this. Um, I could be blamed if it's really sensitive. So what they do is they uh, (laughs) they just say no. And they're not going to suffer if they say no. If they say yes, they might have made a mistake. So, I mean, it, it's just set up uh, where all the onus is on a person, an individual. And, you know, it just works so much better if you have a statutory release date. It is released on that day, and nobody can be blamed. You know, um, for, you know frankly, people are always trying to cover their behinds. And so, unfortunately, um, that's what's happened in Canada. Uh, you know, it, you have to have somebody who knows what they're looking at. <clears throat> right. and, and frankly, they don't. It's interesting, and you noted in, in your Globe and Mail piece that we, we just recently had this public inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act, and as is required when the Act is invoked, that uh, all of these thousands of pages of documents need to be released. They were released through the inquiry. Uh, so we have an established record of the conversations that were taking place, decisions that were made, who was involved, etc. And, you know, the sky didn't fall. So if we're able to do something for something that happened just recently, it, it's, it's bizarre that we can't do it for events that are 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, that's exactly right. It is a perfect demonstration that the country is not going to fall apart. Uh, The sky will not fall if we release uh, documents, um, sensitive documents even, um, because, you know, quite frankly, a lot of the time we do the right thing. You know, we're not actually involved a lot of the time in nefarious things or even stupid ones. Um, So, you know, my feeling is... um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. There are very few things that probably should be kept back. You know, the names of secret agents, for example, or the sources of uh, secret information, spies, etc. I understand that. 
but we're not looking we're not looking for that kind of thing and incidentally that's the kind of thing that was reserved from the uh dump of documents around the um emergencies act so you know we're not we're not being irresponsible about this and it is just amazing what we now know about how decisions were made um not even a year ago on a really important public issue and you know we know that president biden phones up from the united states and we know that there are international implications well you know that's good 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 that we know and why should that be secret so yeah i mean uh this is this is something where i think we really benefit and where i think um a general release of thousands and thousands of pages on january the first every year can easily be justified and the sky is not going to fall very interesting. Well, as mentioned, uh, your piece, it's up at uh, theglobeandmail.com, and uh, we'll, we'll watch for this project uh, as well once it's complete. Robert, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best, Bye. sir. Uh, that's uh, Professor Robert Bothwell, a uh, historian, a fellow at Trinity College at the University of Toronto, working on this uh, history of Canadian foreign relations from 1993 to 2006. I'm sure a lot of really interesting stories to be told, especially that period after George Bush is elected and then John Critchin still in power through 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, but, but you know, through it all, it's a really interesting story to be told there. And so in order to really tell that story, these historians are having to go to archives in the UK and archives in the US because good luck getting any of these documents in Canada. So it's another example of what a mess the system is and just how little transparency there is. That, that's got to change. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.